Welcome to the Kettle Call podcast. Today we are starting our uh, career call with Dr. Dan Schaefer. Before I call Dr. Schaefer, let me go ahead and call Brooke. Hello, Brooke. Hi, Pedro. How are you? Pretty good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks. Is it a good time for a call? It's always a great time for a cattle call. Great, great. So let's call Dr. Schaefer. Hello, Dr. Schaefer. Hello, Pedro. How are you doing? I am doing great. Good. Thank you once again for accepting our uh, invitation. It's a pleasure to have you here. For those of you who are listening, Dr. Dan Schaefer is an uh, emeritus professor at the University of Wisconsin in the Department of Animal Science. He has a lot of experience work on the beef production system, a lot of experience work on the hosting steers as well. When I first started my PhD, I remember meeting with Dr. Schaefer in a national animal science national meetings, and he gave me a lot of instructions, a lot of tips about uh, feeding hosting steers. So I'm looking forward for our uh, podcast today. So Dr. Schaefer, I, I always start with a couple of questions that I, I joke like you cannot miss those questions. And, and after that, we can just talk about. So my first two questions is, where are you from and, and what do you do? So I am from I'm from the state of Wisconsin. I grew up on a diversified livestock farm in eastern Wisconsin. And uh, what I do is um, uh, presently, of course, I'm living in Madison, Wisconsin. And what I do is, uh, well, I am now a retired professor from the Department of Animal Sciences, or actually now it has become the Department of Animal and Dairy Sciences. I retired, uh, I was a faculty member at the University of Wisconsin from 1981 until 2019. And uh, at the end of the last decade, I retired. And so uh, since the pandemic, I have been retired. And I assume you, you also take your uh, grandsons to school as well, right? I do. I take, <laughs> uh, I take a granddaughter to, uh, to school uh, three mornings a week. Uh, my wife and I are going through a remodel project. So I'm actually, my wife and I are living with our daughter and granddaughter uh, in, in their house. They're graciously having us where our house is undergoing a project. That's good. So, uh, Dr. Sheffield, knowing like you grew up with this livestock background, you grew up in in, in Wisconsin. So, when when did you decide to that you, that's that was going to be your path? Like that, you always knew that you had anything in your career that happened that that changed, or when when was that decision? Uh, taken? Uh, okay. Uh, well, it it occurred over time. So, I of course uh, had a lot of different uh, animal species experience as a youth, uh, dogs and cats and. I had an uh, I had an interest in uh, pigeons actually when I was in third grade. I had had experience with chickens, with pigs, and then with beef cattle. And I think it was when I and horses. I have to throw horses in there too. So I think it was when I was about ten years old. I said to my parents that uh, if I was going to study any species, it was going to be beef cattle. Mm-hmm. And then I went to uh, I went to high school, and I happened to have a classmate in high school who was also as uh, dedicated to beef cattle as I was becoming. He was interested in pulled Herefords, and he helped to develop my experience. Um, then later, 
after I had determined I was going to do a career in animal agriculture, or at least I was going to learn more about animal agriculture, then he recruited me to come to the University of Wisconsin-Madison to a department and a major that was called Meat and Animal Science. And once I uh, came into the major of Meat and Animal Science, then I had really found my... Uh, my academic home. And so I became totally invested in the major and uh, stayed here then after my bachelor's degree for a master's degree, uh, which happened to be uh, done on a pork carcass composition question. And then after that, I uh, pursued my PhD with the dual interests of uh, rumen microbiology and ruminant nutrition. So um, yeah, my animal background as a youth played an important role. And uh, of course, my father was a farmer and my mother was a teacher. So I, I think that my path as a, a university professor in animal science was a combination of their two interests. That's that's nice. And I'm just thinking here, like I usually take notes and, and while people are talking, try to... Brooke and I always... Um, that's a later question that I always ask, but like it's something that came up and I think that's interesting. We always talk about the role of, of mentors in careers and everything, but it's interesting that you had one right like early on and was more like a, a friend, a high school friend that was like pushing you. Sometimes we are looking for that mentor who is a faculty, which they we always have those, but it's interesting that you you got encouraged by somebody who were like your friend or something like that yes he has been my lifelong friend he is still a hereford breeder he is an elite <laughs> hereford breeder and uh he uh so i actually began my faculty career at purdue university uh and then i i was encouraged to apply for this position at the university of wisconsin and this man who was my high school classmate called me to participate in recruiting me to come back to the University of Wisconsin and, and the state. And so, uh, and he attended my retirement party in 2020. <laughs> so he's been with me my whole career. That's that's super nice. And, and the other thing that's very interesting when we look at your background is your dad being a farmer, your mom being a teacher, you since like you mentioned you got passionate about meat science and animal science, but since you started school, you always thought about like going to grad school or that's something that when did you start like getting involved with research? Well, when I, after I discovered meat and animal science, then I thought the practical use of a college education was to do something in business. So I actually started out in the business, what was called a business and industry option within the animal science major. And, uh, and I'm so pleased that I took those business courses uh, like accounting and marketing. But uh, as I got down to graduation, then I talked to one of my faculty mentors, a man named Bob Kaufman. And I said, you know, I think I'm more interested in science. And he said, oh, I could have told you that a long time ago. <laughs> you know, you need to be, you need to be in science. And so he helped me then sort of reorient my path toward graduate school. Um, as I did my master's degree with him. So yes, I came, I came into the science path. I, I 
can't say that I knew as a high school student that I enjoyed science. I'm, in fact, I'm, I'm not sure I really did enjoy it that much. <laughs> and I, I sort of had an inkling that I liked chemistry. But when I finally came into biochemistry, then it all came to life. And biochemistry was so much more fun than uh, the things that came before it. That's that's really nice. And, and yeah, that's very interesting. I kind of, when I look at myself, I never thought about going to science. I always like look more in the industry path. But I also think those that background also helps me a lot in my extension job sometimes. And I probably helped you later on your, in your career. I assume oh, that. yes, for sure. I would never give up the, uh, the accounting course that I had. And uh, marketing is also so very important. In fact, one of the things that my department has historically been weak in is marketing. Uh, universities typically uh, market the, uh, they market them, their campus, but uh, the departments usually don't take much of a role in marketing their department other than having some people maybe, you know, they're out and they're doing extension work, but marketing is not a strong suit of uh, animal science departments. Yes, I, I agree, but that's, that's very interesting. So with, with this background, then you mentioned very briefly that like you went to Purdue after graduation. Uh, so going to school, like as you, the other thing that's very nice about your grad school is that you worked with pork, then you work with beef. Those are different species. How, how was that before we move on? How was that transition? Well, it was, I mean, it was very good. Actually, the, uh, I mean, the transition was even wider than that. I worked with pork carcasses. Uh, we developed the first regression equation for predicting fat-free muscle in pork carcasses. And so now, as you know, the marketing of hogs has changed over the last several decades away from a number scoring system to a percent muscle system. So I was, you know, I, I, I was very pleased to see that that work and the subsequent graduate students who refined that work, you know, had an impact. But uh, when I was a senior, I took, uh, we had a research seminar course. In preparing my seminar for that course, I came across this book called The Rumen and Its Microbes, written by Bob Hungate. And I read that and uh, it was like, really, those guys are still alive that uh, are mentioned in that book. So I had a mentor here at Wisconsin, another mentor who was a graduate of uh, University of California, Davis. His name is uh, Norlin J. Benavenga. Benavenga encouraged me to um, seek out a good, solid program based on my interests in rumen microbiology and ruminant nutrition. And he gave me three schools to interview at. Uh, the first school I contacted was the uh, University of Illinois. And I actually was talking to two faculty members in the dairy science department. At that time, dairy science was separate from animal science at Illinois. And so I went to interview with Marvin Bryant and Carl Davis. Uh, Marvin Bryant uh, is a very was a very, very well-known rumen microbiologist. And Carl Davis was a less well-known, but even better ruminant nutritionist. So, uh, and Davis was interested in the low milk fat syndrome. So I got it and Dale Bauman was there at the time and Jimmy Clark. And so I got immersed in the dairy cow, even though I never really did any animal research in my PhD, because all of my research for my PhD program was done in Bryant's laboratory, culturing uh, pure cultures of rumen bacteria and determining their requirement for ammonia. Because at the time, there was a question about what is the optimal rumen ammonia concentration. And so I, uh, I really uh, 
my, my expertise in my PhD program was bacterial growth kinetics. And uh, I determined the uh, half saturation constants for ammonia by uh, six or seven predominant species of rumen bacteria. So, um, yeah, I went from poor, I went from poor <laughs> to, uh, to microbiology. Wow. That, and, and that's, that's very interesting. Like we've had people with different backgrounds, but like you had a lot of, let's say, distinct pathways in the same field, let's say in most science, then we can see how, how many ways we, we can go. Yeah. Yeah. There, there are many ways. And it was, uh, and so for me to, I, I was three schools were suggested to me, Illinois, Michigan state where Warner Bergen was located and uh, UC Davis where Lee Baldwin was. Well, I went to Illinois and it was, it was close to Wisconsin and it was a perfect fit. And I have to say it was the best place in the world for me to do my PhD with those two interests. So, um, yeah, I just, I just loved it. That's nice. And then how was the transition to go to, to the academia? So you mentioned like you stayed in, in Purdue for a couple of years, then you moved. So what were, uh, I always like, there are a lot of students who listen to us. What were the biggest challenges when you were finishing school and looking for jobs and starting <laughs> a, a young career as a, as a faculty? <laughs> Yeah, well, I had a I had a very different experience in that regard too. Uh, so while I was in my PhD program, uh, the animal science department at Purdue advertised a position in which they were seeking an assistant professor in basic ruminant nutrition and rumen microbiology, and I was like, "Wow, that sounds great to me!" So I applied and interviewed for that position, and uh, I had not yet completed my PhD. But of course, I was, only, I was only six months away from completing my PhD. So Purdue offered me the position. Oh, that was great. I accepted the position. And then I went back to do my research. And I realized that I was not as close to finishing as, <laughs> as my major professors and I projected. So um, there were delays along the way in my arrival at Purdue. Purdue waited 21 months for me to show up on the faculty. <laughs> and uh, it became quite embarrassing to me that, but, but eventually my research blossomed and I, I solidly answered the question that I was pursuing. I went to Purdue and uh, started on the faculty. So I had no postdoc experience and I was, uh, I was 27 years old when I started on the faculty at Purdue. Yeah, so I did not have, I, I didn't do a lot of interviewing. I, I interviewed once. Yeah, that's that. And, and, and that, after you started, what, like, I, I always like to ask, what was the major thing that you learned pretty quick that you didn't know in grad school or some, something that like, okay, that's something that you would like, you, you knew that. <laughs> yes, I have an answer for that question too. And the answer is grantsmanship. Uh, when I came into the faculty position, uh, times were changing instead of being, instead of having sort of ready uh, financial support for graduate students. Now there was going to be the need to recruit financial support. And I did not have experience in grant preparation as a graduate student. And I needed to, uh, I needed to do that. And I needed to, I needed to learn how to do that. I think that I can, well, I can say that 
I developed some skill in that regard, but I don't, but I was never as proficient as I needed to be. So I would say that uh, having financial resources to support uh, the exploration of my ideas was a challenge for me throughout my career. And uh, to go to a question that you might ask me later, if I were to do one thing different or make a recommendation <laughs> to others, it would be to enjoy the maturation that occurs while one is on a postdoc, especially these days um, where the body of knowledge has expanded exponentially and uh, the competition has uh, become even more keen. Um, that development of uh, one's ability to generate new knowledge is uh, very important. Very, very nice to hear that. And then you move back home. You move back to Wisconsin. Yeah. Uh, so tell us about your job in Wisconsin. What did you do there? What was your uh, favorite part of, of your job as well? Right. So I went back to Wisconsin and I left this beautiful job description at Purdue and uh, came back to Wisconsin to really wear two hats. On the one hand, I was the rumen microbiologist because there was no other rumen microbiologist at Wisconsin. And uh, the other hat I wore was uh, to be the beef cattle um, nutrition research and teaching person. So um, With regards to rumen microbiology, then I developed a class in rumen microbiology. <clears throat> And with regards to um, the, my, the beef cattle portion of my position, I co-taught for my entire career a beef cattle production course. But then, well, yes. So, so and then I, my appointment was teaching and research. With regards to research, when I came to Wisconsin, someone called me and said that he had 22 Holstein calves that he had raised uh, to weaning in his garage. And he thought that there would be a very nice opportunity for someone to study the Holstein steer as a source of beef production. Because, of course, if you came from a native cattle background, as I did, which was primarily Hereford and Simmental, and all of the colleagues, you know, my contemporaries and those that were older than me, there were very, very few people who would uh, stoop to study the Holstein steer. But here I was in America's Dairyland, and um, on top of that, there was a packing plant here in Wisconsin that was advertising for another 100,000 head of finished Holstein steers on an annual basis. So eventually, I connected up with that packing plant, whose name uh, is Packerland in Green Bay, and uh, I... I did Holstein steer research with the beef cattle nutrition facilities that were at my disposal. And I continued to do that research for most of the decades I was at Wisconsin, never with big funding, but always there was one question after another. And I, uh, I had 22 experiments in my career that were focused on the Holstein apart from that, which involved vitamin E and beef quality. So, Over time, I had quite a bit of experience, and I did a lot of outreach presentations with the packing plant, uh, talking to farmers, um, comparing the feeding program for a Holstein steer to that of a high-producing lactating cow, and uh, 
really trying to educate the state and whoever would listen that um, it's not about forge quality, it's about energy intake. And uh, getting energy into these cattle that are large frame cattle and have you know, considerable skeletal growth potential and getting them finished in an, at an appropriate weight, actually finished with fat content on them and not looking, as my, not looking like a male cow, as my uh, industry counterpart said. There was at the time people who just fed Holstein steers along with their dry cows. And so they got all kinds of forage. And then finally, when they were, you know, 14, 15, 16, 17, 1800 pounds, oh, I think we'll sell them now. <laughs> and so they were basically unfinished cattle that uh, the packing plant did not really want, but they took them and they were looking to make a better product. And over time, it worked. And really unknown to me, the same thing was happening in Southern California. Um, and Danny Fox was active in this realm at uh, Cornell, um, mm -hmm. but he didn't have a packing plant. And um, we, we really had industry contact here and industry impact. So uh, that's a long answer to uh, the fact. And then with regards to rumen microbiology, I, I, I had an active research program for about 20 years, and then I just couldn't keep the funding going for the research program. And so I just kept teaching it. And my principal student population were the dairy science uh, graduate students in ruminant nutrition. So I really served this role for the dairy science population to teach rumen microbiology. I had some, I had some great graduate students in rumen microbiology in my early years, and maybe we'll come to that. But then with regards to beef, that persisted over the whole time. And it was, it was the Holstein steer. And then however I could help with other native cattle studies. But I think my mission was for the Holstein steer. That's, that's pretty nice. And, and, and I totally agree with you. I often joke in my, in my presentations that my role is make a Holstein steer that does not look like me. So they're not this, <laughs> yeah. this, this tall guy with like a belly or something like that. that yeah. It's, it's, that's always like what, what we joke, but that's, uh, that's very nice. So what during those years, you, you've mentioned a couple of things here. You mentioned like a research, a teaching, grad student. What was your favorite thing in, in your career? Like the thing that you enjoy most was like teaching, like you were, you were uh, from the conversations and the interactions that I've had with you. We can see that you love to teach. You like to to teach yeah. people, uh, and and I just curious to see what was your favorite thing that you did during that time. Well, I I mean I did enjoy my teaching and my research and uh, my phone calls. Uh, the people who would call to ask me questions, but the unexpected source of enjoyment was the advising that I did for undergraduate students and for graduate students. So I came to realize that I really enjoyed getting to learn uh, my advisees, my academic advisees. Here in this department, we didn't have any uh, assigned undergraduate advisor. The, uh, the undergraduate majors were distributed amongst the teaching and research faculty, and we each had a batch of undergraduate advisees that we would get to know. So I got to know my advisees, and they would, they would grow from these young freshmen to now these juniors and seniors who were looking for more internship experience. And so I came to realize that 
if they had interests at all close to mine, or if I if I extended myself to take an interest in their interests, that that I would know people and I could I could suggest internship sites for them, or I could um, coach them on an academic uh, coursework path uh, that fit their interests, and I and I would try to open their their minds to things they could do with their animal science degree. And in fact, I created a course then later on called uh, Career Orientation in Animal and Poultry Sciences. That was an outgrowth of my interaction with undergraduates. So. I would say that academic advising was the unexpected uh, source of gratification. That's that's very nice. So, and and you had a career orientation class, right? I did. That, yeah. that was that's and that's probably. I mean, it's it's really good to hear that because that's probably the main reason. When I when Brooke and I when we first created this career call, I thought that would be maybe producers could listen or people, but actually it became something that students listen more than than actually producers so this part of our podcast is more for students and and throughout that time could you just mention a couple points that you you would teach in that class I would like to leave for students who are listening to us sure so my strategy uh, of course was based upon having a student identify their own identity that is I would say to a student what are you interested in and they would say well you know I had this experience with animals or if they couldn't answer the question I would say which course it, it well first of all it presumed that they were satisfied to be in the animal sciences major. So if you're satisfied in the animal sciences major, which course of those courses that you have taken was most interesting to you? And they would say, well, I really like that reproduction course, or I really like the meat science course, or ah, you know, a few would say, I really like the beef production course. And so I would build on that. So first of all, a student needs to know what they're interested in. And then um, the next thing I would talk to them about is um, speaking to people who had interests that were consistent with their interests. So do an informational interview with someone who does something that looks interesting to you and find out more about how they came to be in that path or that role, that job. And uh, then evaluate whether any of that information is a fit for you. I also would give them a worksheet that had a variety of um, characteristics of a career on it. Uh, it could be uh, salary or financial aspects. It could be location. It could be um, could be things related to the nature of the content, you know, just the top. And some would say to me, you know, it was really helpful for me to go through and prioritize that list for myself. I'd never really thought about it that way. Then another thing I did is I had them, uh, I had them read a book in this class. And, and the book is called Who Moved My Cheese? It's a, it's a very short book. It takes about a half hour to read. I would say to students that, um, you know, it's it's my kind of book. It has a large font and it has pictures. And so uh, this is a book about uh, tells a story about some mice that um, one mouse keeps going to the same location day after day after day. And he has he has the cheese that he needs and he goes back home and he's 
you know, very comfortable. Another mouse goes to the same spot and he realizes that the cheese is diminishing day after day. And so he thinks, you know, I better, I better think about finding another source of cheese. Well, this is exactly what uh, I, I needed to teach to our undergraduate population who were principally interested in going to vet school. They came in as freshmen and 90% of them wanted to go to vet school. And I knew that upon graduation, 20, maybe 30% of them would actually get to pursue that path. So the purpose of the course was to have them think about a plan B. And that's, um, that's another element of, um, of career planning is to persist, to devote yourself to your interests, but then to also be aware of whatever other opportunities might be arising. So I would then have speakers come into the class and they would start by saying, you know, I really wanted to go to vet school when I came to this major, but then I, I wasn't accepted. And you know what? When one door closes, another door opens. And I'm so pleased that I went through the next door. So it was, uh, I'd say the purpose of the course was to have students recognize their um, to know themselves, to know their interests, and then to know what could be done with a college degree in animal science. And the answer is one student wrote me a letter A to Z using each letter of the alphabet to uh, mention a career path. Z could be a zookeeper. I mean, you're still using your animal science knowledge. Uh, anyway, and then uh, they would have this sense of encouragement at the end of the course that, you know, I don't have to just be a farmer, which is what their, their non-knowing network would say to them. Oh, do you want to become a farmer? Well, some might, but no, animal science is much more than that. So that's my answer. It was to, it was to offer this sense of identity and, and to have them realize identity and then give them a sense of encouragement. That's, that's awesome. And it's, that's pretty cool. I mean, I, I really, really enjoyed that. So now going back to your career, when you first started, and now you're probably moving towards to the end here, but what are the, the things that you think helped you most when you're first starting? Like, because I assume you probably want to create this course because maybe you didn't have the same opportunity. So you want to give that to your students. But how, how did you build that in your own? Was it just experience or you look for different resources to help you on that? It is about building a program um, when one starts out. And I'll just say that later in my career, when I was the department chair, I would watch this uh, metamorphosis, this change take place in assistant professors from when they came onto the faculty to when they matured into tenured faculty members. And I had to go through that same process, of course. I'd, I mean, it was all new to me. So um, the step to go from being a graduate student to being a faculty member is a very large step. It is the, the magnitude of that change is underappreciated because all of a sudden you're a professor and the, your graduate students are, or students are coming to you and they expect you to know an answer to their question. That's like, you, you are not that much older than they are. And, uh, and now you have to be right more than you're wrong. So, <laughs> so when I set about developing a course, I thought to myself, I knew that, I knew that answers to questions changed over time. So I said, well, what can I teach in this course that is sufficiently certain that it's essentially a principle and I can teach this principle and 
the content of this principle will be reliable over the foreseeable future. So I did not emphasize teaching facts as much as I emphasized teaching principles. So uh, when I started at Purdue, I had to develop a course in ruminant nutritional physiology. I was like, wow. I mean, it was right in, <laughs> right in my rumen microbiology, ruminant nutrition interest, and, but I had to organize my thoughts now. And eventually I said to myself, well, you know, it'd be really cool if I got to the end of the course and I could say to the class on a final exam, okay, there's car carbon and cellulose, tell me about the transformations of that carbon and cellulose to become the carbon in butyrate used for fatty acid synthesis in milk. It's like, whoa. So I've got to organize this. So I need to talk about, you know, anyway, all there's, there's a lot of transformations that go on there. But that's the way I tried to tie things together. When I taught rumen microbiology, I taught, uh, I used Hungate's questions. Who are the organisms? What are their activities? What are the interactions among those organisms? But then I taught it from the level of polymers that come into the rumen to monomers that are produced from those polymers to the metabolism of those monomers to the energy yield from those monomers. Oh, and by the way, we have to keep track of electrons. So I tried to teach and, and, and in beef production, it was you know, it was from, I wasn't teaching reproduction. I wasn't teaching breeding. I don't claim to be strong in genetics. And so I always had someone co-teach with me who was really good in genetics. But my job was was from calfhood to 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 cow to finished animal, all of the management that went in between there. So the resources were just a lot of reading. I mean, I, I, I did a lot of reading. I read industry. I, I still read industry magazines. That's how I learned kind of how to put the beef production course together. And then, of course, I was always involved in the literature and, you know, as a reviewer or writer of papers. So it was it was that's where the really sort of concrete knowledge came from. And then I was taught by my students. Uh, my students would, uh, they would learn things. And, and, if I, and if I could grasp what they were telling me, then it was like, okay, I, I, you know, that, that's a good point. I ought, to, I ought to integrate that into my working knowledge. So, so I learned things from my students. And uh, I mean, I was in school. We are all in school our entire life. We are just always growing. And if we're not growing, we will be known as dead wood. Exactly. Great, great point. I think I think that's uh, before going through our uh, final questions. Do you have any question, Brooke? Anything like that before we go to our final questions? No, but I learned a lot, so that was all really great. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So, so Dr. Schaefer, it's it's been. I mean, I always like this thing because I I will be honest. I come with one thing in mind, and then we are talking, and things change, and I, and like Brooke said, we are always, and you said that we are always learning, and. And more than I think anybody else who listen to us, I'm probably the person who is learning more every time that I'm recording this. So it's it's always a pleasure. So now I'm gonna go to some questions, to quick questions to know more about about yourself. So like usually quick questions we we claim as a quick answer, but never are. <laughs> but okay. So what what is your what is your favorite food? My favorite food is uh, the fish halibut eaten in Alaska. Wow! I had halibut in Alaska, and it was outstanding. Wow! 
Yeah. But 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 you have to go to Alaska. You have to go to Alaska. I, I think it is freshest there and it is uh wow, it was good. It was great. Okay, great. So what is the the type of song that usually plays on your radio? You you listen to radio or you listen to a specific song? Oh, uh, I am listening to the radio and I'm use and I'm really it's always been country western. Well, at least in my later years now. For a long time I didn't have time to listen to the radio, but now it's it's country <laughs> western. Good, good. So We've talked about this before, but let's put that together again. What is something that you would like if you could go back in time to and tell yourself as a younger person? Like, what is something that you know today that you would like you knew when you're finishing school? Well, I I think that postdoctoral experience is very important. It was important when I was younger. It's more important now. I think that um, for a master's degree, a student learns the process of, um, of research. They're pretty much plugged into a project. For a PhD degree, the project is less well-structured and the student needs to learn how to now generate new knowledge. In a postdoc, one further develops the tools in their toolbox, either either a deeper set of tools or a broader set of tools that will be used to generate new knowledge. And I think the postdoc gives a person longevity in a research career. Yeah, no, I, I think that's really, really important. Uh, I mean, I didn't go through a postdoc, even though sometimes I feel that in a postdoc, like having Dr. Zing as a mentor and everything, I, I'm really lucky to be like that. But but also there are a lot of things that I didn't have an idea that I have to do, and, and that's a struggle. And I think a, a lot of times myself, I'm putting on that on that shoes as well. Like we finish school and we want to just find a job as soon as possible because we are tired of school and we want to go ahead and, and kind of build our own program and do stuff. But most of people that I know that have done, a, I would say everybody that I know that, that that have done a postdoc, they do not regret that experience. Yeah, it. I mean, it delays one's entry into the uh, wage earning workforce. And there are, there are financial reasons in that regard to not do a postdoc. And I think that doing a postdoc for 10 years is, uh, is wrong. I mean, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm not saying, I'm not advocating for that, but I think one year, Two years of postdoctoral experience um, has a very good um, cost-to-benefit ratio. Yeah, I can, I can see that. And, and I, like I said, I feel that I, I'm doing a postdoc now because I'm doing that. Even though there were changes that were done quick, but there is more smoothly by having that mentorship. That's really good. So, Dr. Schaefer, it's been an honor. It's been really, really nice. It's, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. It's, it's good to listen about your career a lot, the paths and everything. One thing that we always ask, you already mentioned about a book here, but we have our kettle called Top Tape. I always like to ask uh, about a, a book, a movie, or something that you would like to recommend our listeners to read or listen or see or whatever you want to. You you showed us a book. I'm I don't know if you're going to keep the same book or if you have anything else. My answer to this question, uh, since you gave me uh, the option of even a movie or something like that, I, I'm a kind of a, a fan of thriller movies. Nothing that's particularly 
gory or anything, but I would say my, and I'm a Harrison Ford fan. So uh, he would be my favorite actor. And I have enjoyed many of his movies. I particularly liked his movie called The Fugitive. It's a, it's a, it's a great movie. And then uh, I listened to him one time on a late night talk show when he was being interviewed. And uh, he said something that resonated with me. He said that, um, Everyone should find success according to their own definition. Success is not the same from person to person. And I thought, you know, that's really good because it speaks to the fact that we should apply ourselves to the best of our ability and we don't have to do it according to someone else's standards or someone else's definition. We, we, def- we just work at applying our skills and talents and abilities and interests And it becomes what it becomes. And that is what we should be satisfied with. And so, um, I don't know. I like this. Uh, Success is something that is uh, self-defined. I think that's an amazing way to finish finish this talk. It's like uh, everyone should find success according to their own definition. I... I, I love it. I, and and it's, it's even good, I think, for me as, as a mentor for students also to, to define that their success is maybe not the success that I see on them. So I, I, it's even, I can see myself on both uh, ways now. Yes, I, uh, my very first PhD student uh, prompted me to, uh, well, we had a lot of conversations. And eventually, uh, or somewhere in the course of mentoring him, I said, don't expect the students you mentor to to have the same interests and same drive as you do. Uh, They are themselves and you have to adapt to them in a certain sense. You can still have your standards for performance and knowledge and so forth. But um, yeah, your students will not be you. Yeah, that's, that's very, very good to hear that. So Dr. Schaaf, I know that you, you, you are retired already and everything, but like if somebody wants to contact and reach out to you, is your email the best way to do? You have any other things? Uh, that you uh, like? My email or my cell phone. I don't have a website that by which you could follow me. And, and I, I watch Facebook, but I'm not a poster to Facebook. Uh, so my email would be the best means of contacting me. And I'm, I retired with two objectives. Uh, one objective was to uh, utilize my beef production system knowledge, however that might be. And the second objective was to continue to think. Great. So that's, that's what I do. That's great. Brooke, do you have any final questions, anything? No, nothing for me. Okay, Dr. Schaefer, I would like to thank you once again for participating, joining us. We've learned a lot today. Hope people who are listening to us learn as much as, as Brooke and I did. So thank you again. Thank you very much for the nice conversation. Uh, I hope people enjoyed that, that conversation as well. Thank you for the opportunity. I have enjoyed it immensely. Okay, for those of you who are listening to us, uh, If you have any questions, anything that you would like to suggest for us, our email is kettlecallucd at gmail.com. We're going to leave Dr. Schaefer's email in the description of this episode. You can also subscribe to our monthly newsletter to receive the transcript of the, all of the episodes that we post and, and information about our program. Don't, don't hesitate to do that. And remember, it's always a good time for a kettlecall. <laughs>